Hello, dear listeners, and a big welcome back for Season 3, Episode 1 of the PBC Podcast. An eclectic mix of fun, knowledge, music, literature, entertainment and interviews. Brought to you exclusively by the Transition Year students of Presentation Brothers College here on the Mardike in Cork City. I'm your host, Sam Hernan, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Brian O'Leary. How are you, Brian? I am buzzing, Sam. I'm so excited for this new season of the PBC Podcast, and I cannot wait for this episode to get on the way. So what have we got for you on this jam-packed episode? For starters, a profile of Presboy, current Liverpool goalkeeper and of course recent toy show hero, Quavian Gallagher. Ever wonder what it takes to play with the RTE Concert Orchestra? I talk with their percussionist, Steve Kelly. And Monster, Fanta or Coke? I'll talk to two transition students about their project for SciFest and Miss Claire Lynch discusses the great success that was our recent Science Week here in Pres. Ian Crowley reviews the classic western High Noon. Our raconteur John J. Neville regales us with a scuba diving incident. And for our first big interview of the season, we have a fascinating story of recently deceased artist Herbert Kearney, a former Prez boy and world citizen with a truly wondrous life story. Stay tuned for some remarkable radio. But first, to kick our show and our new season off, it's over to Rory O'Donica as he takes us deep underground in the cave systems of East Cork. Weird and wonderful, I'll let you decide. So today I will be talking about a weird and wonderful hobby of mine. Potholing, speleology, or just plain old caving, whatever you want to call it. It has a place very close to my heart. And just a little while ago, I went with the Cork Speleological Group to Mogili Cave, just outside Castle Murder. A wet and muddy cave it is, and today I'm going to take you on a journey down it. This cave was on a firm, so that's where we met. We all quickly got changed in old abandoned stables into our gear. In caving, you wear what's called an oversuit, a tough waterproof garment that covers your legs, arms and chest. You wear gloves, a helmet, wellies, though the old guard prefers hiking boots, and a light on your helmet. I should probably tell you something about caves in Cork, especially East Cork. When you think of caves, you probably think of wide open passages and walking through what are essentially stone hallways with stalactites. But in East Cork, Caves are made by rivers and streams curving through the rock because the last ice age never made it to East Cork. That means mud, water, and most importantly, narrow, cramped spaces and tunnels where you have to crawl through wet mud. But sometimes it's almost fun to be muddy down in a cave, especially once you leave and truly see yourself. This one was no exception. A small stream still flowed into it. In this cave, we walked across the field to a small woods, we walked down through the stream to their entrance. The entrance to Mogili is no more than a crack in the cliff wall. We squeezed in and slid straight onto our hands and knees onto the muddy floor to crawl to the first chamber. There we grouped, making sure everyone was in the cave and no one had decided crawling around a filthy cold passage wasn't the way they wanted to spend their Sunday. Now, caves are muddy, filthy and cold, but they are beautiful. There weren't any small stalactites, some even not solidified yet, so they were still white and hollow, dripping their water gradually. These are thin, long, and brittle. They are known as straws, because, as I said, they are not only hollow, but they resemble straws. They often grow too long and too fast, and break themselves off. This chamber also had another feature of note. Indents on the walls, almost like clamshells. If you run your hand along these, you can tell which direction... The water that formed this chamber was flowing, because that direction will be smooth and the other rough. 
But alas, we must press on. After more crawling, we eventually came to crossroads where you could stand. To get to this crossroads, we went down a passage whose stalactites and stalagmites had formed properly, making the left side of the passage impassable for us. But we were able to continue down the right until we reached a small, pothole-like indent in the floor. We had some difficulty traversing over it because of the low ceiling. Another thing about caves is that you see the most amazing things, for here, in a deep, dark, cold place, a seedling had bloomed in the pothole. We take plants for granted in our everyday lives, but when you're under the earth's surface with only mud and stone, even a tiny seedling can blow you away. We then moved on, crawling once again, until we came to the previously mentioned crossroads. We went up and to the right up a ledge and up a small passage that forced us to diagonally shimmy up into a chamber named White Lady Hall, named for the large pillar, which is what happens when a, a stalactite meets a stalagmite, white as snow within the chamber. Here, there were many stalactites and other assorted formations and decorations. After taking a last look around, we continued back down on through the cave. Here came the narrowest crawl. In this cramped tunnel, there were pools of water, and it was very cold. But past this crawl, we began to reach older parts of the cave, meaning an easier time, because it had been more hollowed out by the river. After that, we were able to crouch walk through what's known as a sump, which is essentially just an underground stream. But it soon widened, so we could walk upright again. Unfortunately, soon we reached the end of our journey, because the large amount of rain the previous few days had flooded the passage. So we turned back, and we did the entire process all over again. On our way back, we went a more streamlined way without the detour to White Lady Hall, but a bag had been left just outside it, so I had to go back and get it. It was only a short detour down the passage with the pothole. There are no smells in a cave, because all that resides there is simply mud and stone. When you finally leave the cave, the smells of the world suddenly hit you like never before. You can smell the trees and greenery, and the smell is almost overpowering as you leave the cave. Despite all the mud and water, caving is definitely one of my favourite pastimes. It has a sense of adventure because it's a strange environment from your everyday life, and the beauty of a cave is never to be underestimated. Thank you. Well, we're certainly back above ground for the next segment, as we profile a massively successful former press boy who spends much of his time flying through the air. Here's Stuart Daly with teacher Dave O'Riordan on a man who needs no introduction. Imagine a person from Cork City worth £7.2 million, a guy who's living most boys' dreams, a guy who earns £312,000 every year at the age of only 23. Who is this guy, you must be thinking? This person is Liverpool FC's goalkeeper, Cuevin Geller. Cuevin Geller attended Presentation Brother College and was the starting goalkeeper for his school. But what makes Kelleher so special? He played for Ringmahan Rangers as a striker, but one match the goalkeeper was injured, so Kelleher's dad suggested that he played in goal for the game because he was a decent goalie and had some experience. But little did he know that that game was going to change his life. He played so well, he decided to change his position to goalkeeper and became the starting goalkeeper for his club. Having a trials with Aston Villa, Kelleher was recommended to Manchester City by the scout in Liverpool, but no move was made. At the age of 19, he was so good, European giants Liverpool FC offered him to play in the academy. Of course, he couldn't turn down this opportunity. 
and off he went. He impressed the coaches so much that he was called up to the senior squad. Kelleher made his name known in a Carabao Cup match against Arsenal. He made some great saves, including two penalty saves in the shootout. Kelleher is ranked 1,083rd among all players worldwide, 336th among all Premier League players, ranked 23rd in the Liverpool squad, 4th best Irish player and the 51st best keeper in the whole world. Now with me is David O'Riordan, teacher at Presentation Brother College and former coach of Cueven Kelleher. So Dave, what were your impressions of Cueven Kelleher when you coached him here in Brez? Well, hi Stuart. I'd have to say uh, the first impressions of, of Cueven when he was playing in goal was uh, he just had star quality. Um, there was no doubting it. Just to talk to you about the miracle match back in 2014 where we beat Christians in the Cork Cup final, that, that really, I think, epitomises or epitomised uh, Cueveen's class as a goalkeeper because we were playing against a Christians team that were made up of primarily fourth and fifth year students. They were physically much bigger than us. Uh, our team was made up of, of kind of third and fourth years, but amazingly, Cueveen was only in second year uh, during that game. So I'll, I'll just to give you an idea of the team that day with Cueveen in goal, Fergal O'Brien, Brian Mulcahy, Brian Cotter, Colin Maguire, Dave Dalton, Dave Barry, the son of, of the Cork City player Dave Barry, uh, Alan Walsh, Harry Shanahan and Dara Holmes and Matthew Forrest. And we had a really talented team, but we were really, really small. So we played uh, on a windy day up in Corinthians Park on the top pitch and they just totally dominated the game. We, we were struggling to get out of our half and Cueveen must have made... I would imagine over 30, 30 or 40 saves during that game. He was impenetrable between the posts. Uh, everything they do, he actually broke them down psychologically the longer the game went on because they couldn't score. And as the game went on, you could see their heads were dropping. I think really, for all of us that were at that game, we knew that this guy was something special. Uh, for a second year to have that much composure, he was actually... Uh, directing his defence for the whole game, telling them where to move. He was standing on the edge of the D. He just had total composure and authority for a second year and the lads respected him instantly. What was he like as a player and as a person? Well, I'll, I'll talk about as a person, first of all, he was, uh, I would say, very, uh, a very nice kid. Uh, I actually taught him for geography in second year. He was a lovely kid. He was quiet. He was modest and uh, he was a really nice kid. I think that was great because he wasn't bringing any ego or any of that with him, you know. He was modest and I think that's one of the reasons why he made it. He's kept his head on his shoulders um, and I think that's why people of, of the school, within the school here, uh, are so proud of him, that he's such a good role model for, for everybody else. And I think that's why we're talking about him today, because of that uh, humility. And as a player, uh, I would say, well, uh, clearly the best I've ever seen. You know, we've had some great players through the school here, like Brian Lenhin and, and others. But I would say um, just quality, the confidence, the composure. He had all the attributes then, like reflexes and everything like that, you know. His, his distribution was exceptional from the outset. Like he could throw the ball to the halfway line. And immediately that gives a team an enormous lift. It was like having three extra players on the pitch for us. Uh, and finally, was he always the starting goalkeeper for the team or did it take him time to mature as a player? No, he, he, was, he was that good. He, there, was, there was no ambiguity about who was going to play in goal. He was the goalie. Uh, funnily enough, the time, like within the school here, we haven't been blessed with goalies. You know, it depends on, on who comes through. But we had another very good goalie as well, Ono Sullivan, 
who was a really, really good goalkeeper and Owen was fantastic during that period because he never complained. He was a great, great kid in, in the squad and in the dressing room before and after games. So really, that helped as well. But Cuivin, undoubted, there was, he was class. Thank you, Dave, for taking the time to talk You're with You're very today. welcome, Stuart. Thanks. Thanks, Stuart, for such a lovely piece on the incredible Cuivin Callagher. What a wonderful human being he is, and what an ambassador for Prez, Cork and Ireland. Now, however, for something completely different. From Guns N' Roses to the RTE Concert Orchestra, here's a conversation I recently had with Steve Kelly. Enjoy. Here with me today on PBC Podcast is Steve Kelly. Steve, how are we getting on? Good, thanks. Good. Good. So Steve, for people who don't know who you are and what you do, do you want to tell them? Sure, so my name's Stephen Kelly. I'm a percussionist with the RTE Concert Orchestra. Um, I teach percussion in the uh, Cork School of Music as well. And um, yeah, I've been doing both jobs for quite a while now. But yeah, pretty much drumming, uh, oh God, more than 30 years now total since first started hitting them. What inspired you to pick up percussion, Steve? Truth be told, it was um, a live concert that I saw on TV of uh, uh, the band Guns N' Roses and their drummer, uh, what was his name, Matt Sorum, that's it, did an amazing drum solo like with you know, thousands of people just screaming at him and I kind of thought, that's pretty cool, I wouldn't mind having to go with that myself. <laughs> now I haven't ended up doing anything like that but um, being a percussionist in an orchestra is not quite the same thing as um, playing in Guns N' Roses, I'd say playing in Guns N' Roses is a bit Kind of quieter and safer, to be honest. You know? um, what kind of music did you grow up on, Steve? Kind of what were you listening to as a young child? Um, both my parents are musicians, so it was just there was music, um, kind of all the time. Not necessarily like played on, like it would have been records back then, and and then into CDs. But it was actually going to a lot of live concerts. Like I suppose there was no babysitters or no yeah. money for babysitters, so we would have been brought to all of their concerts that they were played. Sat in the audience, told to be very very quiet, or else. And then, yeah, we would just, like, you'd listen to a lot of live music. That's what I remember, anyway, from being a young fella. And then, like, age five, we were put into the school of music, started off on our theory lessons and piano and everything like that. And from the start, so to be a musician, Steve, do you think? Yeah, there was kind of no choice for any of us. I have two sisters and a brother, and everyone's a musician. What's life like with the RT Concert Orchestra, do you know? It's good. it's, uh, It's never the same. Like, every week is different. New people new artists coming in to work with us, new music to play completely different programmes. Like one day we're playing classical music, the next day we could be doing a film gig, then we could be doing a disco gig with Jenny Green. So it it's fantastic in that regard because they're really it's never the same and that's yeah. what's really nice about it. Keeps you on your toes, so definitely. Big time as a percussionist because you've got to know, like you have to be able to play every single percussion instrument and as you know, there are very, very many of them, you know, but it's more as well that you have to be able to understand the different styles of music and you don't play classical the same as you play uh, movies even or, you know, you've got to be able to play jazz but you don't play uh, jazz drums. It's nothing like playing rock drums. So you've got, and some, some gigs you could be doing all of those things all in one night. So you have to have many hats basically. I always play quieter than louder as you told me, <laughs> like, you know. There is that yeah. too, that you've got to... Um, I suppose kind of fooled them into thinking that you're musical, you know, by playing softer. But uh, no, it's it's that kind of, that's the thing as well. Like you're working with a group, like a large group of people. Tonight's concert, there's over 70 of us on the stage. You have to be very attentive. You need to know what everybody needs as the drummer anyway. You know, you, yeah. you have to 
you're kind of late. You're you are part of the foundation of the orchestra, but at the same time, you can't have the ego that kind of ruins the concert by kind of playing over the top yeah. or anything like this. You know what I mean? So yeah, that kind of thing of like playing quietly, playing musically, always thinking what does the music need as opposed to what do I need. You know, that's the that's the crucial thing I think for a drummer or a percussionist anyway. And who, who would you say is probably the best musician you've worked with or your most favourite musician you've worked with? Well, it that's a tricky one because, like, it, we've had some unbelievable artists come in, you know, people who've sold, like, millions of records have won Oscars. Give us a few names. Yeah, give um, a few names, Steve. Uh, to give you a few names, I suppose for, for me, uh, jazz guitarist John Schofield, he was incredible, absolutely brilliant, and just such a nice man. And, like, this is one of the absolute top musicians there's ever that has ever come in with us and, you know, world-renowned and Grammy Award-winning and all of that kind of stuff. But he was just so nice and he just and he put everyone at ease. Yeah, we had a really nice gig. But to be honest, like one of my colleagues in work, James Dunn, he's the other percussionist in the orchestra. Like when he plays something, you just you'd be turning around, you'd all be on the floor. He's that good. And I get to work with him all the time. And there's uh, the other lad, then Oliver Taylor, who plays the timpani as well. Such a musical player. So it's the kind of pleasure of going to work every day with your colleagues that's that's a huge thing as well you know like in, you can have your celebrities I'll take the lads you know so fair enough fair enough <laughs> what do you think um, would be your favourite concert you played you know what well, uh, what was the last one uh, no it, sometimes it, it, it is like that because it's it, you do so many it's kind of it's kind of hard to think um, but we did like certainly in the last kind of um, I suppose eight years or so with this decade of um, remembering the all the stuff that happened a hundred years ago, like we did an incredible gig in um, uh, the Grand Canal Theatre for the nineteen sixteen commemoration that went out in the telly. We just did one the other day in City Hall, Cork, that was all about the burning of Cork, a piece that was written specifically for that. And these kind of things, like being part of these historical yeah. remembrance things, that for me, I I like the old history stuff. Yeah. So um, those kind of things, being being able to be involved in those those things is really great for me anyway yeah I like those gigs do you know when you're going on the Late Late Show then what's what's the scene like there do you know what is it coming in and you're practicing and recording or like yeah it's so like things like that the, the TV things they're very funny they, they're they nothing like they look on TV that's for sure right. you know so but usually we would get yeah, maybe one or two run-throughs with whoever the artist is they do their camera shots you know um, they kind of get everything in a row and then you kind of sit around and wait there could be interviews and there could be TV ads and competitions and all this and you sit and you wait and you wait and you wait and then all of a sudden, that's it, you're on and you've three minutes or whatever like that, you do your thing and that's it, done. Don't drop a stick. That's <laughs> the most important thing. But again, like, the, you know, people, you know, like Ryan Tuberty obviously is a really nice guy. Yeah. The people who all work on the floor, everyone's very nice. Everyone wants to put, you know, because, you know, the, the, the stars, they get nervous too. Nobody wants to kind of, you know, especially on live TV, nobody yeah. wants to do any uh, anything that they didn't want to do. So, well, some people. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then going into your teaching career, Steve, kind of what what made you decide that you wanted to kind of teach people how to play percussion? And um, again, that's a big thing with musicians in general. Most musicians teach for a couple of reasons. One is it's to pass on to the next generation the information that you've got and you've gathered and and kind of collected in your experience over the years. Um, and that's it. It's huge. Like if you don't do that, who's gonna? Yeah. Who is gonna do it next? You know. Um, the other thing is, I suppose it's to kind of. It's so much fun playing music. It really, really is. And if you can get kids playing music and enjoying it, sure they'll enjoy it for the rest of their lives. Then, 
whether they go into the profession or not, or, or sometimes people keep it up on an amateur basis. Sometimes people put away the instrument forever, but they go to concerts and they go to gigs and they'll support music because they know kind of how good it is. Yeah. So it's it's very it's an important role as a teacher to kind of yeah, just to kind of keep laying the groundwork for the next generation, whether they be musicians themselves or just enthusiastic about music. Yeah, do you think like all children should learn an instrument? Do you think it'd be good for them? Or? Absolutely. Yeah, music and sport, that's yeah. what it's all about. Like, you know, if you can do both, fantastic. If you can do one, that's that's great. But you got to be, absolutely got to be doing one or the other. It just helps on ev- every level. Like, you know, how you feel when you get up in the morning. Yeah, physical fitness, mental fitness, skills learning, all of that kind of thing. And again, it's just good crack and you get to meet people your age who have similar Similar interests, I suppose, and then you make friends for life. And do you think it's important, Steve, for uh, like children to learn music instruments and play music and be oh, involved in it? Massively, yeah. It's a, it's a huge thing. Music and sport are the things, if you can do both, great. If you can do one, fantastic. But you have to be definitely doing one or one or the other of them. Just for everything, for your physical well-being, your mental well-being, your skills learning, um, and just having fun. With uh, like-minded kind of uh, people, you know, like kind of meeting people your own age who are all into the same thing and getting together and playing music. And it's such a great sound. And yeah. especially, with, you know, in the youth orchestras when there's loads of you or in the bands or percussion ensemble, you know, yeah. you've done Yeah, you, you make great friends in them as well, like, you know, because you're, you're with each other during the week, like, and you're playing music together that you're all learning and you're all kind of at the same level. And it's it's just fun to, like, play music with people, like. Oh, a- absolutely, yeah. And again, you, you'll make friends for life. Yeah. Do, you know, the, the people you meet along the way, you'll, you'll never forget them and all the rest of it. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, and I still get to work with my buddies who I met, you know, long time ago. It's brilliant. Like, uh, so, it? oh, it's yeah, great. It's yeah, great it's track. fantastic. So what would your voice be to a young musician, Steve, listening to the podcast, you know? <laughs> the well, number one thing is practice. Yeah. That's all it is. Um, if you can find the time to practice and keep practicing and just stay at it, then you you just get better. And that's that's the way it is. The better you get, then the more you start to kind of realize, wow, I can I can really do this. Your confidence improves. You start playing with better musicians. You start getting out there. And again, I'm, I'm what, I'm 43. I still have to practice. You yeah. know, like it doesn't stop. And But it, it, it is that thing. But again, I suppose like practice can be a, almost a dirty word because it can kind of have connotations of torture yeah. and of, you know, hardship and all the rest of it. fun away from it almost. Yeah, like, but yeah. if you can find the way to make practice fun or just kind of realise, you know, no, the longer I stick at this, the more fun it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, it really does pay off. But yeah, that's, it all comes back to practice. Yeah, brilliant, Steve. Um, final question now for you. What's the thing that you're proudest that you've achieved like in your career now? What are you most proudest of? That I'm still working, <laughs> I think, is, is probably one of the... Uh, one of the things, isn't it, like that, you know, that every day I'm still going in, I really enjoy it, you know, still love playing the drums, that's the the big thing that, that that's never left, and I think that's a thing to hang on to, that you don't get cynical, that you don't get beaten down by it or worn out by it, but that you can still somehow find, kind of, because it can be tricky, it's like any job, it can be tiring getting up in the morning, and it can, you'd be late back after gigs, and yeah. the money isn't great, and there's, you know, there's a whole list of mo- moans that you can have, but if you turn, if that all starts turning into kind of negatives and it's always negative, then bad things happen. That's not good for no. your for yourself and for your you know for your soul and for everything. So it's to stay, yeah, you kind of kind of keep it in a in a really positive place. Keep it always kind of 
keep always looking on the you know the good side of it. Yeah, basically, I know. You definitely know? from my years of knowing you, anyway, Steve. I'd say you're probably one of the most positive people I've met. I'd say somehow right. now. Like, I'll keep it up. So do, yeah, do listen, Steve. Thanks a million for coming on to the podcast and taking the time out of your day. You've been a great guest. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the PBC podcast, and I hope you enjoyed Steve Kelly. He's quite the character. Now, at the top of the show, we had Rory taking us deep underground on his caving adventure. And now we're going to go down again, this time underwater with John J. Neville and life lessons garnered from scuba diving. My first foray into scuba diving occurred when I was about 11. My sister and my dad had also gotten their scuba diving certificates, and so they were pushing me to also get mine. My sister had gotten hers when she was around 11 as well, so we all decided, sure, why not, as we were on holidays in Spain. We went to a local dive shop. I got through all the coursework pretty quickly. It wasn't exactly tough. It was pretty fine, honestly. And we got into the water to do the skills. Some of the skills some people find a little bit tough. However, I got through them all pretty quickly. However, there was one I was dreading the whole time. I was dreading the... 10 meter mask removal and clear. What happens is, in that skill, you swim down to about roughly 10 meters, could be more, could be less. You remove your mask, it fills up with water, you take it off, put it back to your side, put it back on, and you have to clear it by blowing out your nose. So, as we started descending to do this, a shiver went down my spine, as this is probably the most terrifying thing I've done. Just imagine for a moment, metric tons of water above you. There were also fellows fishing above me, and there were boats going around the harbour, as this wasn't exactly a quiet, secluded area. So I could feel the weight of everything around me, physically and metaphorically. My dad was also there, diving, to sort of motivate me a bit. However, this would end up doing little. So, as we got down, my buoyancy was somewhat off, so they had to hold me down to the floor, which only added to my worry. As the instructor I was with performed the skill herself, I watched carefully with a fair amount of fear, knowing that I'd be next after this. She put her mask back on, cleared it, seemed all very simple, and then it was my turn. Slowly and very carefully, I broke the seal on my mask, and a flood of water came in went just a little bit up my nose, and instantly I got a sort of primal fear and panicked. What I did was, I grabbed my BCD, which is a buoyancy control device, and inflated it, which you should absolutely not do as you're underwater, due to air expanding the higher you go. So the thing could have popped and sunken me, reasonably. However, I did have the instructors there to keep an eye on me and make sure I didn't get the bends either, which is nitrogen bubbles in your, well, blood, which can kill you fairly simply. Anyways, when I got to the surface, I flew out like a salmon going upriver into a bear's mouth. Apparently it was somewhat of a thing, as I caught a little bit of air, and the fishermen that were above us were, well, understandably surprised that this 11-year-old wearing scuba kit that was too large for him, well, caught a fair amount of air. So I was terrified, and they had to pretty much drag me back to the shore, and I was incredibly disappointed with myself. 
because I'd gotten so far and just happened to fail at the end on the last skill. That sort of guilt stuck with me for, I'd say, a good six years until recently this year, we went on holiday. I asked my parents, could I retry my scuba cert? They agreed, and the whole time as well, this time I was, well, worried about the same skills, thinking this will just happen again. However, I was attempting to stay optimistic. The first dive we did, we just happened to do the one skill that I really, really didn't like. It was just a simple mass clear, not the 10 meter one yet. However, I was still dreading it. So as I came down underwater, as I descended with my instructor, seemingly once again, I started feeling the weight above me again, but what I did differently this time was I closed my eyes for a moment, slow breaths in and out through the respirator, and then I watched my instructor perform the skill simply, and I just did my best to believe that it would be simple and easy. What I found was it's easiest to breathe in deeply before, take off the mask, put it back on, and then a sharp exhale to clear out all the water. Of course, it's still very disorienting. However, it is much easier than attempting to do it any other way. After that dive, I was extremely confident. <laughs> Probably a little bit too confident altogether. However, scuba diving now had a bit of a hold of me, and I was obsessed. <laughs> when I dived before, it was in a fairly filthy harbor. It was nasty. Very to silt being churned up and all sorts. This time, I was in a pretty tropical location. There were fish everywhere and a shark, actually. <laughs> a couple of them. And off in the distance, I even saw a massive grouper. That terrified me a lot more than the sharks. So for the first dive where I could actually see my hand in front of my face, surrounded by fish and sharks, too. However, sharks do get a bit of a bad reputation, as they are, in fact, very calm. Unless you do something to irritate them. I believe that the moral of my story would be, as challenging as your fears may be, you should do your best to overcome them, as afterwards you'll feel an overcoming sense of pride. The inimitable John J. Neville there, and we hope to hear more stories from John throughout the season, so stay tuned. Now on the PBC Podcast, we turn our attention to all things science. Here's Sam. I'm Sam, and today on the PBC Podcast, I'm going to be talking to the science coordinator here in Prez, Miss Claire Lynch, about the brilliant week of science we've just had for Science Week. So, Miss, can you tell us a little bit about the events of Science Week? Certainly. We were delighted to be able to come back with a Science Week this year in 2022, and we put huge effort in as a science department to make it as interesting as possible. We actually started, it spilled over the week. We started on the 10th of November uh, with a forensic science workshop for all fourth years, um, where we did kind of a, a CSI type workshop looking at JFK and his murder and looking at fingerprints and looking at all the various evidences that might have proven Oswald did it or not. <laughs> um, and that was quite interesting. It certainly piqued interest. And I suppose a lot of students came back from that delighted that there was something extracurricular going on as well as classroom stuff for science. Um, we went from that then to the Friday. And on Friday, we had a talk for senior science students um, with the Irish Cattle Breeding Federation. Very interesting talk uh, aimed at ag science obviously, and biology and computer science students looking at genomics 
and how they're, I suppose, looking at the genes and changing the herd in the country uh, based on the genetics to actually improve the herd and produce much better cattle and much better for the farmers and better yield in terms of meat and so on. That was really interesting. Um, Then we were into Science Week proper, I suppose, on Monday the 14th. And all second years went to photo that day and they went to do their ecology work for the day with a lot of members of the science department. So it was lovely to have that in the middle of the week. Uh, Tuesday, we uh, went to UCC. Um, TY biology students went up. We had 56 students going up on the day and the biochemistry department hosted us with uh, Dr. Sinead Kearns running a DNA workshop. Um, Very interesting workshop. We've done this in other years it's aimed, I suppose, at the Leaving Cert course, but beyond. And some of the stuff that we did up there in terms of sickle cell anemia actually goes into second year college level. And I always find that's a really interesting day, particularly for students that are that bit ahead of their peers. Um, it brings on, um, I suppose, interest in the sciences and kind of lights that fire of it might be the career choice for people in the future. We went then on Thursday into a a variety of science quizzes. First years had a quiz that morning, all first year students involved and working in teams and that worked quite well and uh, there was winners from every class. And then there was a third year science quiz that morning also that was done in the theatre and winners from all classes there as well. And that evening I was lucky enough to go with my colleagues from the science department, Mr Ian Lehan and Mr Alan Donnelly and uh, Seymour Sexton and we went to UCC and we took nine of our boys up for a senior science quiz that again hadn't been run since 2019. We were delighted to get back to it Um, and that senior science quiz had 37 teams from all over Cork involved and our teams, our three teams, all came in the top 10, one of them coming second and I'll be taking them to Dublin to Trinity College to take part in the national final on the 3rd of December this year. So we're delighted with uh, the work that they put in. They were working on it for five or six weeks, doing lunch hour questions in the lab, um, finishing courses themselves uh, with help from their teachers. And it's something that we've always done really well on. Um, it's a quiz that's done nationally. The first time we ever entered was 1996. And we came first and second, not only regionally, but actually in Dublin. They had to do... Um, various tiebreakers between our two teams in Dublin to see which of the two would come first or second in the country. So from a national perspective, we've won this quiz three times and we've actually placed second nine times, which is phenomenal really in terms of uh, science in the school and for the school itself. Um, We rounded off Science Week with a fabulous magic show from the chemistry and physics departments. They put huge effort into it. Uh, TY students were working uh, to show a variety of experiments and magic effectively with chemistry and physics uh, to first year students. And that was absolutely amazing. Uh, That's normally run by teachers or run by people outside of school, uh, as in college professors, and they do that for our students. So it was a huge effort from the science department to actually run that in-house this year. And I think all enjoyed it. I I was told that the um, video work for it 
came up absolutely amazing. So I haven't seen the video for it yet, but it's it's wonderful to see the science department in full flow. It's been an amazing science week and I'm so delighted that science is back to being what it always was in, in Prez. Uh, those COVID years were very difficult and, you know, just to get back, we always do well in terms of exams in science, but just that excitement involved in all the extracurricular stuff is amazing. Yeah, definitely, Miss. I think I can I can attest to the excitement surrounding some of the uh, the workshops and whatnot, the Lee Harvey Oswald and the JFK Forensic Science workshop was incredibly popular among all the DUI students. I'd say Lee Harvey Oswald's name hasn't been said so much in the in the halls <laughs> in Prez ever, I'd say. Um, and the biology trip to UCC for the DNA workshop was incredibly popular as well. And from here, I guess, is a good point to segue over to the scientific investigation module for transition years. And Miss, I know you're running this module as well. I'm running it this year. I've had the pleasure of running it the last two years as well. And actually, this module was set up by Miss Mickeljohn um, in about 2018. We were looking at the fact that the uh, BTO Young Scientist Exhibition is very arduous and difficult in terms of uh, getting into the competition to begin with and then the amount of work needed to be done. So they started a SciFest competition, which is a little bit easier in that it's got three layers. Uh, there's a school-based um, competition followed by a regional competition, and finally a national competition as a platform um, for boys and their scientific discovery. I- I've got to say, I've always felt that like we do really well academically in the school. We do really well in terms of the sport in the school. But we needed something for boys that are really bright and we've lots of those and particularly for their scientific endeavours and their scientific discovery over the years. Like we've done really well in this. Um, we had a regional winner, they're Quevon and Illen, and they went on to win in 2019. They went to the national final. Uh, they subsequently won the ISTA prize, the Irish Science Teachers Association prize. And Mr. Regan won a prize there as the best biology teacher um, and the BT Young Scientist Exhibition they entered the same year and they came third in the category for that um, we've had lots of other success as well in 2020 with no lab but we actually entered two projects both of which won things um, third place with Dylan Costello and Daniel Hegarty on the biological topic and Sean Hurley and William Hetherington actually won three prizes they came first in the physics project they won the ESRO, the Irish, um, the European Science Research Foundation uh, Science Prize, and they won a physics prize. And I won the physics prize that year, which is strange because I'm a biology teacher. Um, so we reckoned that Mr. Lehan was the only one. Now he needs to win a chemistry prize just to make the uh, the trial. Um, but in 2021, we won a physics prize again. And this year we have four projects that look very healthy and we're very much looking forward to them going ahead. That's very interesting, Miss. I, I'd never actually understood the history Prez has in the events. Um, but we have two of the lads from the module this year with us, Luke and Fiacra. So lads, do you want to just give us a little introduction into what you're studying? Yeah. So this year, like the project that we're doing for SciFest is... Uh, testing the effect of energy drinks on like your teeth enamel and we're we're doing this using eggshells because they're quite similar to your enamel 
Um, and this was a project that kind of made a lot of sense to do because in Prez, a school that is so active, you see energy drinks constantly. Um, you know, it's it's something that it's better to experiment on because the results that we get are actually going to, to prove something and may even be helpful to some people. So, Fiaker, if you want to take it away. Yeah, so the procedure that we went through for the... Uh for the experiment was we we basically use these eggshells to which have a similar uh, composition to uh, teeth and we put them in various different uh, energy drinks and we used all different types like Monster, Coke, uh, Zero Sugar, Monster, Zero Sugar, Coke, Fanta, Lucozade and Apple Juice and so we've put them in at the start of the school day and we've taken them out at the end and we have measured the mass before and after and seen the difference and seen how much of the eggshell the, the energy drink has taken away like. And it's we find the results very interesting so far. Before we did the uh, the experiments in the first place, we measured the pH of the of the each drink. So we found that Monster and Monster Zero had the high had the highest pH, so it was the least acidic, and Coke was the most acidic. So just, sorry sorry to interrupt, is, were you thinking that the most acidic would be the most erosive to the eggshells, probably? Uh, we were, yes, that was what we were expecting. So far, we have carried out the experiment, and we've been surprised to find out that it's been Monster that has been causing the most damage. Really, to- even though it's the... The least acidic. Yeah, um, it's it's had a much high, it had a much higher pH than Coke, but it's been causing a lot more damage. Is it the type of acid, or does that make much difference, or is it different ingredients in the monster that's eroding the calcium? Yeah, so uh, the monster contains a lot more ingredients, and one of the acids that now there's multiple acids that are making up the monsters, but in particular, the most damaging one or the one that does a severe amount of damage is citrus acid. Um, and while it's not the most acidic, I think its pH is around 3 or something, 3 to 6 maybe. You know, it can be quite close to a base sometimes. But I think the calcium and the type of stuff we're working with, um, it's way more damaging. Like if you look at Coke, for example, um, the main acid in that is called phosphoric acid. And that has a pH of, I think it's 1.5. Oh, so it's, it's a lot, which lot is more. Which way, acidic. way lower. But... Um, it's actually nowhere near as damaging as the monster. So, you know, that kind of shows something that we should kind of be looking out for in the school because it's it's such a, a severe effect. Yeah, of course. that That's very interesting, actually, as well. It's that it's not only the the basic level of, oh, how acidic it is, but it's actually the type of acid as well. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because caffeinated drinks are really on the rise among teenagers. And I think there's a huge problem, particularly with the fact that there's so much caffeine in them. This goes back to a yearhead meeting we had recently where we're looking at outlawing them in the school. And this was because a student came into class uh, who obviously bought his own lunch because his lunch was a packet of biscuits and four cans of Red Bull. So you can imagine for the afternoon, uh, it was very hard to keep that, uh, that boy entertained, <laughs> let alone in his seat. So it came up at a yearhead meeting and I've got to say, I've always thought that this was an interesting topic because a number of years ago there, maybe back about 2013, 
There was a student in the US died at age 16 of a caffeine-induced cardiac event. And he had just literally had a, a large diet drink, which happened to be Mountain Dew at the time, followed two hours later by an energy drink. And from the perspective of his, I, I suppose, the cardiac event that he had, he may have had a predisposition, but that's quite serious. Um, there's no safe limit for caffeine under the age of 12. And between 12 and 18, it's supposed to be 100 milligrams a day, which is one cup of coffee or two cups of tea or two cans of soda. But if you drink a monster drink, which is 500 mils, you actually get a much higher dose than the required amount. It's 150 to 160 milligrams of caffeine in one can of monster. So quite alarming. As a central nervous stimulant, I know it's on the rise in terms of what people are using, but there's a Nature article, um, which is kind of like gold standard for science, from 2013 um, that looked at adolescent caffeine consumption and the damage to brain development. So they were looking at delays in brain maturation and reduction in the number of synapses. This is the ability to actually link things together in your brain at a critical time in terms of brain development. And they also postulated that there may be linked to schizophrenia and personality disorders in the future. Quite frightening. <laughs> yeah, quite frightening, actually. That um, what, what really stood out to me there was you said just that statistic that one kind of monster is the equivalent to two or three cups of coffee because everybody I think when you say caffeine would think of coffee as the main source. Absolutely and a lot of students do drink coffee but it's just that the amount of it and that the damage that it can do is not really well known. Yeah yeah I I think that's lads is a very very interesting um, topic and I hope everything with SciFest goes very well for you as well. Yeah thank you. Thanks. Thanks lads. Certainly food for thought there, Sam, and best wishes to all the lads in SciFest. All that talk of fizzy drinks makes me want to reach for a toothbrush. Let's turn now on PBC Podcast to the classic cinema and one of the greatest westerns ever made. Here's one of our film buffs, Ian Crowley. What time is it, Ian? Well, it's high noon, of course. In one hour's time, a dangerous criminal named Frank Miller will arrive into a small town in the Old West. His gang of three are waiting for him at the station and plan to hunt down and kill the marshal who put Miller in prison. Marshal Tim Kane finds out about Miller just after his marriage. Kane is now in a race against the clock to get help. Unfortunately for Kane, everyone in the town is too afraid or doesn't care to help. Kane decides to stay in the town and confront almost certain doom. This is the premise for the 1952 Western movie, High Noon. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. On this hour, wedding day. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. High Noon is a phenomenal movie. It stars Gary Cooper as Kane in an Oscar-winning performance. Among other cast members were Mexican actress Katie Girado and Lloyd Bridges. Further down the cast list was Grace Kelly in only her second film. She made just 11 movies before getting married and becoming the Princess of Monaco. Lloyd Bridges was the father of actors Bo and Jeff Bridges. For such a small budget, the movie really had a star-studded cast. 
the budget of the film itself, when adjusted for inflation, would be around $8.3 million. And at the box office, it grossed $135 million in today's money. I would recommend this movie. High Noon has great pacing with a speedy 82-minute runtime. Not a single second is wasted. Each scene serves a purpose, whether to escalate the drama or enhance the message of the movie. The dialogue is captivating, and you're on the edge of your seat throughout the film as Kane struggles to get help. The acting is great. Cooper deserves the Oscar he got for his role, as you can see the inner conflict that Kane is in. The cinematography is simple yet effective. The director and cinematographer actually meticulously planned out each shot by drawing them, effectively being some of the first to storyboard. There was one great shot in particular where the camera is high in the air, looking down at the empty town with Kane standing in the middle. I love this movie, and I think it deserves all the praise and acclaim it received. However, when it was released, a lot of people didn't like the movie. In fact, they hated the message it was trying to send. Why did people dislike it so much? Well, it has to do with the social and political unrest in America at that time. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, there was paranoia in America that communists were infiltrating media, politics, and crucially, the film industry. It was known as the Red Scare. The result was the formation of the House Un-American Activities Committee under bigoted anti-communist Senator Joe McCarthy. It resulted in people being investigated for their political beliefs. Hollywood actors, directors, and others were called to testify before the committee. Now remember, Russia had been America's ally in World War II, and now less than a decade later, the two countries were bitter enemies in the Cold War. Hollywood stars were brought before the committee and questioned for hours on end. Pleading the Fifth Amendment, the right not to incriminate oneself, was no defense as it was seen as a guilty plea. The accused were given the choice to betray associates by naming them as communists in return for a pardon. Household names in Hollywood were blacklisted and unable to get work again in the industry. Careers were destroyed. This method of political suppression came to be known as McCarthyism, named after its chairman. All of that ties directly back into High Noon, which acts as an allegory for McCarthyism. Thus we see the marshal, Tim Kaine, being persecuted by four men, yet he stands for what is right in the face of almost certain doom, while the rest of the town watch on in silence. There's a scene where Kane is looking to recruit people in a church, and the mayor of the town has an interesting bit of dialogue that can be seen as a comment on the politics of the time. All right, I'll say this. What this town owes Will Kane here, he can never pay with money. And don't ever forget it. He's the best marshal we ever had, maybe the best marshal we'll ever have. So if Miller comes back here today, it's our problem, not his. It's our problem because this is our town. We made it with our own hands, out of nothing. And if we want to keep it decent, keep it growing, we've got a thing mighty clear here today. And we've got to have the courage to do what we think is right, no matter how hard it is. The mayor also talks about how a shootout in the town might make people up north fearful of investing money into the town. He wants Kane to leave so the town can just live in peace. Just like how the Red Scare affected Hollywood, people who were suspected communists were told to leave for the sake of the reputation and financial prosperity of actors, directors, and producers. The making of High Noon is really interesting. The writer of the movie, Carl Foreman, was actually called to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. He was uncooperative with the panel and was blacklisted. 
Foreman was eventually forced off the movie by High Noon's producer, Stanley Kramer, and received $1.7 million in compensation. Foreman's experience directly reflects the movie he had written, as he stood his ground for what was right, and all his business partners and friends did not help him. John Wayne was a famous actor, conservative, and anti-communist who supported the blacklisting in Hollywood. He called High Noon un-American. He disagreed with the idea that people in the town would act cowardly and not help the marshal. Wayne, along with director Howard Hawks, made 1959's Rio Bravo as a direct response to High Noon and was met with as much critical acclaim. Watching the two films, there is a clear contrast between them. Rio Bravo follows similar basic plot points to High Noon, However, the people of Rio Bravo seek to help the sheriff as much as they can. The sheriff is also cool and collected throughout the film, in comparison to High Noon, which had Kane frantically looking for help. In my opinion, I think High Noon is the better movie, but Rio Bravo is quite fun and is great as a companion piece. Just one funny little story. At the 1952 Oscar ceremony, Gary Cooper won Best Actor for his performance in High Noon, but he wasn't able to be there, so John Wayne accepted the award on Cooper's behalf. Interestingly, Wayne had been offered the role and turned it down. This is a great film that I think everyone would enjoy. Sure, it might be an older movie that's in black and white, but the emotion and tension that High Noon creates is still present and potent 70 years after its release. Ian Crowley there. I'm definitely going to have to put High Noon on my to-watch list. Further film reviews and thoughts in our next episode with Keanu Mahoney when he discusses the classic Scorsese De Niro film, Taxi Driver. Time now on the PBC podcast for our big interview, and what a treat we have. Ronan McAuliffe of Sixth Year, our very first presenter on our very first podcast, returns to interview Matthew Carney, brother of recently deceased Herbert Carney, the amazing artist whose incredible oak sculpture of the death of Ferdia now stands proudly here in the grounds of Prez. I really hope you enjoy Herbert's incredible life story. Hello and welcome. My name is Ronald McAuliffe, and today on our special interview, we've got Her- uh, we've got Matthew Carney, brother of Herbert Carney. Now, for any of the students in the school, you may notice the big Cucullin statue as he holds Ferdia, um, and Herbert was the one who sculpted this absolutely fantastic statue and we have Matthew with us today to talk about the life of Herbert and everything that he's done and how he eventually um, sculpted that statue and how it's ended up back here in Prez. Hello Matthew, how are you? I'm good Ronan, good morning and thank you so much for inviting me in to talk about Herbie Um, and as you rightfully say the magnificent sculpture of the death of Ferdia Uh, that's now thank God and very very uh, gratefully accepted by Prez and very, very, very happily bestowed by our family in Prez. I think it's a fantastic place for this sculpture to reside uh, now that Herbie is no longer with us. Um, I suppose, will I speak a little about the uh, sculptor, the artist himself a little first? That would be brilliant. Um, Herbie was one of uh, eight children, uh, born of Olive and Matt Carney, um, we returned from Birmingham, England, in 1970 to live here in Cork, both parents being from Cork. Um, we actually attended St. Joseph's for the first year on returning from England, and then into Pres Primary. Uh, that would have been around 72, 73, I suppose. Uh, and spent, yeah, a very happy 
and we always reflected on our days in Prez and the Prez family. We both went different avenues within the school, um, but both enjoyed it uh, at the same time. Herbie was definitely more artistic than I because I couldn't draw a straight line. Um, he certainly was a bit more academic than myself and a bit more committed than myself as well. Um, Herbie graduated from Prez in about 1983. Uh, but I think a very important circle of life comment at this stage would be um, in first year, at the time, there used to be a national art competition. I don't know, was it Texaco or Board Gash or somebody like that that used to sponsor it? But in first year, Prez Herbie entered into the competition and he did a painting of uh, the death of Ku Cullen, uh, who on his own death right uh, supported himself in his dying breaths by strapping himself to a pillar. It came first or it came second in that national competition. I'm not sure whether it was first or second, but definitely one of uh, the two. And it actually was part of a collection then that would have toured the country and would have been displayed in various uh, buildings and that. Uh, it was a very, very well-known national competition. Uh, and I think... That brings us then, on his graduation, he continued his education in the art world by going to the Crawford uh, School of Art here in Cork for a couple of years and headed off to America. Um, at that st he came back a lot of times, but to get it to the sculpture that we're talking about that's actually out in the yard here in Prez, um, there was a massive storm on one of Herbie's trips home um, in here in Ireland, obviously, and uh, there was a lot of trees that were felled out in our uncle's farm. And Herbie went out uh, with my father and another brother to help our uncle clear the trees. And as they walked, um, Herbie spotted this twin-trunked tree, said, that's mine, I'm taking that with me. And uh, they said, what do you want that for? He said, that's not a tree anymore. He said, that's Ku Cullen and Furrier. He could see this, a tree that was felled in the storm, lying on the ground. So anyway, long story short, they cut the tree down to what we believe was about 11 tonnes and shipped oh, it. Yeah. Oh, wow, 11 <laughs> tonnes of a tree. They shipped it, Roland, in uh, an open back truck into my father's home in Douglas, and they offloaded it there. And that's where Herbie started the sculpture. Now, growing up, I mean, um, like obviously that's that that's incredible in first year to to come first in an art competition, a national art competition. Um, how does he get into Celtic mythology? How how is it that the um, Cúchulainn, the death of Ferdia, and all of that becomes so important to Herbert? Where does that happen along the line? Herbie was always into. Irish folklore, um, Irish m music, uh, and not in kind of the the daddy da Irish music, but more into the the ballads, anything Irish, anything traditional. Uh, particularly going back as far as folklore, he just threw himself into it, studied it, and loved it. And an awful lot of his artwork reflects his interest in it. I think that's for me anyway. Um 
and you 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 send a small script on to me about um Herbert's life but I mean that that certainly caught me um when you were saying that the tree that fell and he just looks at it and goes no that's that's not just a fallen tree that's Cucullin holding Ferdia I mean for for someone to just see that like you know the way when when people work right you work 9 to 5 but well, majority of people do they switch off but to just in in your everyday life go around and see things like that to that that that's just incredible to to notice something that everyone else would see is very mundane and go well no that's Cucullin and Ferdia I I I thought that was unbelievable yeah and I think Herbie always had that uh, way about him. Um, loved nature. Uh, loved Mother Earth, as he called it. Um, Herbie would see things that a lot of us wouldn't take note of. From the point of view, Herbie didn't just learn art. Art was innate. Art was in his DNA. He loved life um he loved getting out and about and trying new things and seeing and not just touching them but seeing them and smelling them and encompassing them um so i think that that foresight that herbie had very few would have um but that was just him that's in relation to art and creativity it was just in his dna so so then he goes um, to the Cork School of Art and after completing his course there, graduating, he moves to New York. So what happens in New York? Where does he go from there? Well, I think even in some of his own writing, somewhere along the way, he said he wanted to see life beyond Cork and, of course, the Big Apple. Being the Big Apple, that was the first place that drew his attention. And uh, Herb's headed to New York in and around 1985. And... Uh, you couldn't possibly expect Herbs to live in a, an apartment in Upper Manhattan. No, no, Herbs headed for the Chelsea Hotel, which, for those of you that are not aware, is a very famous, famous hotel throughout the world, um, inhabited by artists, poets, alcoholics, criminals, actors, potential actors, and he just absorbed it, threw himself into it big time and uh, became great friends with Valley Myers. And she also lived in the Chelsea Hotel. And uh, I believe they had some incredible memories and incredible times in the Chelsea Hotel. Is there any interesting stories that he's told you from his time in the Chelsea Hotel? Uh, There are. Maybe I shouldn't uh, air some of them now. (laughs) (laughs) But there's a great friend of Herbie's, Bobby Yarra, who was uh, an immigration solicitor in New York, and uh, they became great friends, not so much through the immigration aspect of it, but through gatherings in the Chelsea Hotel. And Bobby himself, uh, being a native New Yorker, he loved to sing and loved to dance, and that's what drew them together, because outside of all Herbie's other creative abilities, he was a fantastic singer. I mean you'd think that his voice was trained, but he used to sing a lot of the Irish classical songs, and Bobby Yarra fell in love with that side of it. So having a good time in the Chelsea Hotel and having a dance and having a sing-song probably incorporated everything else that was available in the Chelsea Hotel. (laughs) Would I be right in saying that that was kind of 
that, that going to the Chelsea Hotel, um, meeting up with all these other artists, people pooling ideas, bouncing them off each other. I mean, him um, starting to work on oil canvases and things. Did that, would I be right in saying that brought him then onto the next step of his career? Yeah, I think you are, Ronan, correct in saying that. Uh, because now he was immersed in the circle of people that he longed to be immersed in. Um, and his days in New York, um, he created uh, an income, I suppose, from the famous uh, horse-drawn carriages um, that you see on movies and stuff like that, unless you've been to New York to physically see them. So he, he, he drew a, a livelihood from the horse-drawn carriages and his social life immersing with poets, sculptors, actors, writers. And I suppose when that time had um, come to its conclusion, he moved on to Fresno and spent a period in Fresno and then went to New Orleans, which was the love of his life, where he lived for most of his life. Uh, and I think, yes, it was all driven by a desire to learn more, see more, meet more people. Um, New Orleans would be a ferociously uh, active and strong art centre. Like there'd be many art galleries, there'd be many poetry readings. Uh, an awful lot of New Orleans day-to-day -day culture was what would have drawn Herbie to go down there, you know. So he'd be perfectly in his element. This was kind of, this, this was the mecca of art, really, for Herbert. Absolutely. Herbie thrived in New Orleans. He uh, met many, many people. Uh, he got in famously with the art gallerists, had many showings. Um, like to give a scale of where Herbie kind of got to in his art life, Herbie had showings in London, in New York, uh, in Melbourne. Uh, some of his art, uh, there's a famous building, I can't think of the name of it now, but there's a famous building in Melbourne and some of his art actually hangs there uh, to this very day. Um so, yeah, he was big in his own right, uh, and he was big within the circle down in New Orleans. Um, but he, he left New Orleans uh, to do things like um, take up residency with a tribe of Native American Indians wow. and lived with them for, I think, about a year, a year and a half, threw himself like everything else he did in relation to art, threw himself into it. He has genuinely, this might sound corny, but Herbie has been uh, designated by the chief of the actual tribe as uh, a brother of the tribe. Wow. Uh, he, all kinds of stuff that we could never imagine doing. I, I, I mean, like... A lot of people say, right, I'm, I'm very well-travelled. I've been to Italy and I've been out to the Middle East and I've been to China and all parts of the United States. But for someone to throw themselves straight into a culture like that, to spend as much time um, just surrounding themselves, absorbing all of that, it's, it's that, that, that's something that's just breathtaking. You know, you kind of, when you think about that, when you, when you think of someone making that much of an effort to go and want to see new things. And I think, you know, even even in today's society, I think people are content with just saying, ah, well, I've been there, whatever. But there's there's there's, there's just something special about that. And like when we were, we were chatting before this interview and you were saying he went out fishing in the Bering Straits in Alaska. I mean, 
Was, was this always something that was innately within Herbert, that even from a young age he just wanted to get out, he wanted to see things, he wanted to break free from just being in Cork and broaden his horizons? Uh, again, you're right, 100%. I think most of us live, as Herbie would call it, without insult to anybody, because I'm also included in Herbie's comment, we live a mundane life. Uh, there was nothing mundane about Herbie. Um that trip up to the Bering Straits, he tells two great stories that jumped to my mind in relation to that. That would have been factory shipping now. That would have been heavy, hard, tough going. But Herbie wanted to do it, so Herbie did it. But he tells great stories of, um, you must imagine that uh, from floor to ceiling on a factory ship, the height would be like this. You could be talking 20 feet, you could be talking 30 feet. So the art of... um, winning a bottle of whiskey or winning 200 cigarettes was uh, you'd learn the skill in high storm, high swell, three or four fellas would be standing on the the steel-plated floor of the ship and maybe 20 or 30 feet above them, the piping supplying water and whatever else throughout the ship would be there 20, 30 feet in the air. And the game was... Who could jump 20 or 30 feet and grab the piping in the air and hang on the longest? So you'd say, how can any fella jump 20 or 30 feet? The trick is, you've got to imagine, the ship is hitting the wave, so the ship crashes careers upwards, the wave breaks, now the ship is coming down. So now we've got, what would they call that in physics, Ronan? We've got weightlessness or something like that? I, I, I guess the, sh- the ship floor just... just yeah, I guess you're just propelled upwards, really, as, as, as it goes down. Herbie would propel himself up while the ship was on its way down, and it was all about the timing. But Herbie was very wiry and slight, and he nearly always grabbed the bar. <laughs> <laughs> he nearly always win the cigarettes, and he nearly always win the bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but the other great story, the swell was so bad on one occasion, they had to pull into an inlet or a harbour or bay or whatever it was that they found, and the ships were all roped together, and uh, Herbie was out the bow having a smoke, and uh, he looked over. Oi, I know you. And he was shouting to the fella on the next ship, and the fella, and this is true, the fella on the next ship was from Cork, and they knew each other. Is it, <laughs> you, is it you in couldn't a small write, world? <laughs> you couldn't write it. <laughs> that, those, those sorts of stories are, oh, they're unbelievable. But you were saying that, um, Herbie would have found our lives very mundane. He would have found that we were just kind of integrated into a big system. What was his outlook on society? If, if you asked Herbert to describe the world we lived in, the way it is, what would his outlook on it be? Well, firstly, again, you're right about structure. Our lives are structured. Herbs would often have said that um, his life was not planned in any way, shape, or form for him, but it was a format that took him where and when. Uh, Yeah, his outlook, I must say, and I'm not being negative here, but he would have been fairly disappointed. Um, He always referred to the world as Mother Earth, everything natural there. So he wouldn't have anything too pleasant to say now about... uh, if we look at what they're trying to do in saving the planet, 
Herbie has writings from the early 90s flagging this type of thing in his poetry. Um, he'd be very disappointed. What's happened in the Amazon basin would tear his heart out. Uh, he coined phrases um, in relation to the natural supply of water. We the water, the water we. And what he's actually uh, pertaining to there is that uh, what, what are we made up of? What percentage of our body is water? What percentage is uh, food? It's all high percentage water. Without water, we have nothing. And it's all of those type of outlooks that Herbs would have had. Uh, he would have had no time, again, I will repeat it, he would have had no time for the normal structured way of life, what everything natural, everything that Mother Earth had given over should be preserved and should be looked after. And he was all inclusive. He certainly wouldn't be happy with what's happening at the World Cup today. Um, when I say all inclusive, he's all inclusive in as far as he would have an appreciation and an understanding of other people and their desires, but he would have been all-inclusive by way of trying and experience a lot of things himself. Um, now, for, any, like, for anyone that hasn't seen any of Herbert's artwork, is there a nature theme? Is, 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 what does it represent? And is there... What, what is Herbert trying to express in any of his art? Is, does he believe that everything's interconnected? Is it... Like uh, certainly the sculpture of Cucullin and Ferdia, um, very natural theme to it. Um, take us through some of Herbert's artwork. Um, well, if I may, well, I can I just revert back to the art piece that's there and the history oh, of it and what what, yes, what, what what drove Herbie on to do it. Um, Cucullin, and again, it's from the folklore. He he he, he would have derived that, and he would have drawn from things that were going on around him that he loved. And again, it's just purely back to nature and his experiences, uh, Mother Earth and human life itself, the origin, where do we originate and how do we originate uh, through woman? And an awful lot of his art would have been about the conceiving and the procreation of the human race, believe it or believe it not, and you'd see a lot of that in his work. But to go back to the death of Ferdia, it's a great story, uh, Satanta, was on his way to his uncle's uh, castle one evening for a banquet. Uh, the uncle, forgetting that Satanta had been invited, left the hounds out. And on his way, Kukolam uh, was challenged by the hounds and had to defend himself. So on driving the Schlitter with the Hurley as hard as he could, the hound choked on the Slitter and died. Hearing the commotion, Colin, his uncle, came out, uh, asked what happened. It was explained. He said, my God, he said, you're so athletic, you're so proficient. Uh, well done you, I'm sorry what happened to you, but you'll now be called Kukolin. So Satanta went and he was rechristened Kukolin, keeper of the hound. Uh, so he was then honest to his uncle. But back in those days of folklore, these guys were big guys. They were huge men, fighting men, and Ferdia would have been a milk brother, as Herbie would have called him, not a blood brother. And that was always important to Herbie throughout everything in his life, relationships and how people interacted and how people interfaced with each other. But a milk, a milk brother would have been um, like a stepbrother, 
or like a foster brother, somebody that was given over at birth from one chieftain to another chieftain in order to strengthen that type of uh, setup that they, they all lived in. And um, they were fed from the one breast, so not blood brothers, but milk brothers. And both were taught to be great warriors by um, Skihawk, uh, who would have been the teacher of ancient fighting arts. But Ku Colin was taught how to use the gay bullock, which was a traditional magical Irish spirit, but Ferdia wasn't. Um, Ku Colin himself, he was a defender of the Red Hand, which is Ulster, as we'd know it. And there was a prize bull, uh, the bull of Cooley. And Queen Maeve of Connacht wanted the bull. And she sent her army against Ulster. And Cucullin said, we won't fight the whole army against the whole army. I'll fight 20 of your best warriors every day. And at the end of the day, if I win, the war is over. We keep the bull. You go home. Fine, she said. Cucullin being a, a ferocious warrior, wiped out the 20 opposition guys very easily. So it had to happen the next day. And it had to happen the next day because Queen Maeve wasn't going home. Um, she'd got tired of losing so many soldiers. So she came up with a cunning plan and she brought Ferdia to a big party over in Connacht and fed him with drink and asked him would he fight Cucullin, that she wanted the bull of Cooley. And he said, no, I will not fight my milk brother. Uh, we are great friends. And in turning, she muttered, he said you would say that. And he said, excuse me, what did you say? He said you would be afraid to fight him when I asked you. I'm not afraid of him. Oh, well, obviously you are. And that's how the scheme unfolded and how Ferdia ended up fighting Ku Cullen. And as the battle raged over four days, um, Ferdia did inflict severe wounds on Ku Cullen to the degree that Ku Cullen had to unleash uh, Grey Bullock, which was a magical, mystical spear that once it entered the body, um, it was um, made from fishbone, and the fishbone would spike and obviously brought poor Ferdia to his end. But before he passed, Ku Cullen, so broken, gathered him to his bosom, and I suppose he watched the last lights of life leaving his body, because in spirit, Ku Cullen died that day himself. So we had one physical death and one mental death, and uh, I think Herbie always just associated so much with that kind of thing. Does it represent Herbert's view that love is really important for people, and that... In the world, there is nothing stronger than love. You never met him. I think you just summed him up. <laughs> well, I, Absolutely I, 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 I did bingo. Have a chance, I did have a chance to read one of his poems, Moment of a Million Messiahs. Mm. And um, that, that, that's really what it's about. He says that there are cer certain things that bind us physically, but spiritually, love is what binds us all. Correct. And I think the other thing he's saying there, Ronan, is that there's a lot of man-made things that do the opposite to binding us. 
And dare I say, I, I need to be very careful here because religion is religion and religion is sacred to um, people of all creed. But I think what Herb is also saying is that if man can learn to understand that and how important that is, why would I take umbrage to you uh, in your religion or in whatever way you wish to live your life if you're living your life uh, without upsetting others? And I think one of Herbie's great underlying messages throughout his life is, why can't we love? Why can't we live with each other? Why can't we understand each other? And that really was deep in his moral. And then, of course, when he did go back to New Orleans and Storm Katrina hit, he stayed behind. He didn't come back to Ireland. He stayed behind to set up soup kitchens. I thought that was just amazing. Yeah, it was truly amazing. And I remember as a brother, and I know other brothers and sisters would have contacted him and said, what the hell are you doing, Herbs? You've got to get out of there. Everybody's leaving the place. But no, Herbie was a giver. Herbie saw the, the, like the devastation that was there, Ronan. Again, he didn't live in a high-rise tower in the good part of New Orleans. Herbs was down at the coalface. Herbs threw himself into where the storm left the worst devastation. Herbs witnessed ferociously horrible scenes of the carnage of the bodies that were left behind. And that's where Herbs established his soup kitchens and uh, he did work with the authorities in helping and feeding and particularly water was vitally important. There was banks of water left in different parts of the city because it was what was there was undrinkable. So yeah, he didn't do kind of things by half. He got stuck in and that was it. I think I'd be right in saying that certainly the Cucullin statue, it represents Herbert's outlook on life. Just before we do wrap up this interview, could you please read the poem, um, A Moment of a Million Messiahs? I can. I'm reading it from a published book that Herbie wrote. It's a book of Herbie's poems and also his illustrations are on opposite pages to each poem. A limited edition that Herbie did. The first 200 copies of this book, he actually bound by hand, believe it or believe it not. The book is also, it's called The Barbaric Haku. He's done it in Japanese style. Uh, so reading from left to right, you have a whole series of poems and uh, illustrations. And then you can read the book back the other way, from left to right, and with a whole cohort of poems and illustrations. Moments of a Million Messiahs by Herbert Carney. Until we all become of one mind, one heart, there can be no Messiah. Selective religions must all expire. Churches, synagogues and mosques are but monuments to mammon's negation. Mental emotional crutches for collective spiritual separation. If computers are tools to marry our minds, then love is the system which physically soulfully binds for without the why the how will surely die we must break through time and space making the moment a place for a million messiahs to shine with one face Matthew I'd like to thank you very much for that interview it was absolutely it was, it was incredibly insightful into the life of Herbert thank you so much Certainly. thank you Ronan <laughs> Wow, 
What a life and what a man. We are very grateful to Matthew for coming into us here in the school and for doing justice to our remarkable life and a remarkable man. Rest in peace, Herbert Kearney. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for on this episode, but make sure to download and listen to our next episode coming this side of Christmas when our big interview will be with Whitbread prize-winning poet, professor of medieval English at Oxford University and proud former prize boy Bernard O'Donoghue. That and much, much more on the PBC podcast. I'm Sam Hernan. Living Brian O'Leary. Boyfriend Air. <laughs>